Our Lenten series began with the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, in which we saw the enemy leading Eve to suspect the goodness of God. And we saw then how that seed of suspicion grew to her act of disobedience and then grew in, over the generations in the case of uh, Cain to accuse God of actually being as unfair and as unkind as Eve suspected. And then generations later, growing and maturing into Lamech's judgment that in fact, not only is he unkind and unfair, but so he has proven himself unable to reign and rule and judge rightly and well, and so seizing to himself the privileges of God. And we saw how that grew to the extent that every thought of everyone was only evil all the time, maturing to that great fiasco we know as the Tower of Babel, which brings us to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read the passage although we're not going to begin there immediately, allow me to read the passage, Genesis chapter 12, beginning with the first nine verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Abram, and said, To your offspring, I will give you this land. And so he built there an altar for the Lord, to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us, his people, today. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, on this day that you have set aside, in this place that you have set aside, at this time that you have set aside, a day um, especially in which we remember the arrival of your son, Jesus, in Jerusalem and the celebration that ensued. Father, we are reminded of how um, easily we are distracted, how easily we miss the point, how desperately, therefore, we need your spirit of wisdom and understanding to grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe rightly and clearly and confidently what it is that you are speaking. So, Father, we pray that you would protect us from error, 
and feast us upon the wonders of your great love. For we pray it as your children who have been made alive together with your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as Clay indicated, today, according to the, what has become, at least in the West, our traditional uh, church calendar, is Palm Sunday. Clay read for us an account of that from Matthew chapter 1. But you remember what it is. Palm Sunday is the day in which Jesus arrived for the last time in Jerusalem. And the crowds there were all welcoming him by pulling off palm branches and laying them down and laying garments on the ground to receive their new king. The crowds had long expected, they had long waited for this king. It had been, he had been prophesied and told throughout the Old Testament. And so today was the day. Today is the day that we celebrate. And so Luke tells us about this in Luke chapter 19. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany in the mount that is called Olivet, he said to his disciples, saying, Go into the village and you will find a colt there and bring it to me. So those who were sent away found it just as he had said. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, Why are you doing this? The Lord has need of it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Brothers and sisters, this was an amazing celebration. Jesus was coming into his own. This was the day that we all wait for. They finally recognized me. I'm the man. I'm the king. And they finally know it. And they're finally celebrating And so it's strange to us that in just the next couple lines, Luke says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Dude, what is your problem? Listen to these people. They're celebrating you as the long-promised king. Isn't that what you've wanted? All this time? What's with the tears? What's with the weeping? It doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, it does. What's going on here? Why the weeping? in the face of the celebration. It's an important question because it gets at the heart of what it means for us to live faithfully as His people in Canaan. 
It gets at the heart of what it means for us, sinners though we prove ourselves to be time and time again, to live faithfully among a faithless people in a faithless culture. A culture that teaches us to celebrate certain things and to not celebrate others. And because of our deeply rooted suspicion together with Adam and Eve of God's goodness that has led us together with Cain to accuse God of being unkind and unfair in his dealings with us, which has matured within us together with Lamech in our judgment that God simply lacks the wisdom and understanding to rule every facet of our life well. The question arises, what real possibility is there for us to live as resurrected people together with Jesus Christ in a world of death? To cause us to live in such a way that pleases God that causes us to flourish and function as peacemakers among a people at increasing war with one another. Given our deep roots in and our family commitments to the spirit of Cain and Lamech, how are we to faithfully live as countercultural agents in Canaan? The disconnect between the celebrations of the crowds on the one hand and the weeping of Jesus on the other hand will give us a hint to what is going on. But in order to find where the disconnect happened, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. For at the intersection uh, between the crowd's celebration and the king's weeping, we find hints to rightly hearing and rightly celebrating the good news. And when we look closely, we find that in the disconnect between the crowd's celebration and the king's mourning is rooted in how we have understood the promise originally given. And how we understand how our understanding and how our understanding of that promise shapes our understanding of ourselves and of one another. And of our place and responsibilities in this world, in this place, at this time. And in arriving at that intersection, we will discover so much of what goes on in our own heart is not what we often think it is. So if you have, in fact, turned back to Luke 19, now I'm going to ask you to turn back with me, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. You remember the context. I gave you a little bit of the context as we got into it. The Tower of Babel there at the first part of chapter 11. And then there's this long genealogy at the end of which we read this. Chapter 11, verse 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, which is about halfway, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And so here is our context. 
what we've been tracing through the first part of Genesis is the spirit of Adam and Eve as it has grown into the spirit of Cain, as it has grown into the spirit of Lamech, as it has grown into the spirit of tyranny that we experienced in the days of Moses and the spirit of what I might call humanistic self-exaltation that we see in the whole Babel episode. All of that happening, that Babel episode happening on what is known as the plains of Shinar. And that is where they begin to lay out this city with a great tower in the middle of it that came to be known as Babel. And later, most believe, the very city of Babylon itself. But just south of that area, at the south end of the very same plains, the very same region, is this other little city called Ur. Ur of the Chaldees. Ur represented what they hoped Babylon would represent. The very beating heart of mankind's attempt to build for himself a great name and a great city, a great civilization, a great legacy. It was well known throughout the ancient world for being wealthy and powerful and successful. We might describe Babel, the relationship between Babel and Ur, as being the sort of relationship between New York City and the USA in general. What we think of when we think of New York City is we think of, of, of the highest pinnacle of North American achievement financially and politically. That's where it's at. You want to make something of yourself, move to New York City. And New York City comes to embody the spirit of what it means to be a citizen of these United States. Or we might think of how we refer to Wall Street. The spirit of Wall Street is not, is it not the, the beating heart of the spirit of the United States? We want more. We deserve more. And if we come and try hard enough, we will get it perhaps on the backs of others. And so Ur of the Chaldees functions in the biblical worldview something like that. And this is where Abram is from. It's easy for us to remember, and rightly so in light of Hebrews, that Abram is in fact the father of faith. But we must remember that Abram was very successful in the spirit of the Chaldees. He was a very wealthy man. He was very powerful. He had accomplished much, as his wealth indicates. And it was in that context, chapter 1 of verse, of chap, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 12, is in that context that the Lord had said to Abram, leave, leave, leave it all, go. Why in the world would God say that? 
I mean, if he stayed there, imagine the good that God might have accomplished. He had already accomplished so much, and he could use him really powerfully and effectively in that place, in that time. Could he not have? It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand why the Lord in his wisdom did not consult me before issuing this call to Abram. Because I would have said, hey, look, he's got connections. He's stable. He's got position. He's got influence. He's got money. He's got power. Dude, God, leverage that. Your kingdom will flourish. But no, he, he didn't consult me. Instead, he said, leave, Abram. Leave your country. Leave your kindred. Leave your father's house. Leave is decidedly definitive. Leave. And he doesn't say leave because, dude, I'm going to take you to this place and I'm going to do this. He just says, leave. I got you covered. Leave. It's Stephen in his account of this whole episode in Acts chapter 7 that tells us that it was there at that place that Abram received the call. And so he set out together with his family. And so it's important for us to note that this call comes in the shadow of Babel. This call comes in the shadow of Babel where men are committed to making for themselves a great name and a lasting legacy. And the Lord says, leave it. Leave it. Because that is your destruction. And watch what I will do. Of course, this all gets repeated in the New Testament. You remember the... the um, statements, the shocking statements to us in Matthew chapter 8 and then again in chapter 10. Leave your father and mother. Let them bury the dead. Leave them. Come and follow me, Jesus says. And he says later in Matthew chapter 10, unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot come and follow me. What in the world is he possibly saying there? He's saying this. Leave. Leave. All that you think is your security. All that you think is your power. All that you think is your influence. Leave. And trust in my wisdom. This is exactly what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Leave all that you presume yourself to have accumulated and accomplished and come and follow me. Where I am going is secondary. The primary thing is follow me. Because I am doing something. Look what he says in our passage. Go to the land that I will show you. Now watch. 
I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the plan. And it is a perfect, that is to say, a complete and full, shall we say, overflowing plan. Notice there are seven promised blessings here. There's the blessing of a great name. There's the blessing of a great nation. There's the, there's the, the, the sheer blessing, I will bless you. There's the, there's the promise to bless all those who bless you and curse all those who curse you. And then there is the promise that not only is this for you, but it is for all nations. And indeed, as we read in Romans chapter 8, we learn that part of what is in view there is the very outer edges of the cosmos. Sevenfold blessings. It's perfect. It's complete, full to overflowing. But not only so, it's an expanding blessing. It's a dynamic blessing. It's not something static. I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great. You will become a blessing. I will bless, I will curse, and through you or in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's this growing, this sort of, um, this sort of irresistible flow to this blessing. Abram, even if you want it to be just about you, it's not going to be just about you. It's going to be about everyone and everything. But notice this, and this is the crux of where we tend to miss the point. It's a substantive blessing. The substance of the blessing is what? Look. Verse 2. I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless, I will curse. You see, what's happening here is that the substance of the blessing is not the blessing, it's the blesser. It's the one who calls. It's the one who promises. Verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 12 stand in deafening opposition to what we saw in chapter 11. Let us make our name great. Let us make for ourselves a great city and secure for ourselves a great legacy. And against, and against the, the rattle of that in the background, the Lord comes and in His still small voice says, I will do this thing. This is what Paul is saying when he, when he blesses the Thessalonians. He says, remember, the one who called you is able. He will do this thing. This is almost exactly the same thing that we see when, when later David wants to build a temple. And so he comes up with this great and magnificent plan, and then the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, comes back and says, 
Who do you think you are? I called you when you were but a shepherd. I will do this thing. I will make for you a great house. I will make for you a great kingdom. You will not do it for me. Because you see, David had misheard or at least misremembered the promise. Even as we do. We misread the promise of the good news regularly. We, we tend to think that the good news is that my name will be great. My nation will be great. My glory. And on this reading, in this understanding of the gospel, when Jesus arrives in our city, we celebrate the accomplishment of our dreams. We believe that Jesus arrives finally after all of these years to accomplish that for which we have been laboring, for which we have been dreaming, to accomplish for us our purposes and our plans. Because after all, isn't that what the promise was to Abram? Think, for example, of how we misuse the Bible promises. I can do all things. Or all things worked out for good. We see and we hear the promises of the gospel's power as God's promise, promises to accomplish for us everything we dream of, everything we set our mind and our heart to. But brothers and sisters, our minds and our hearts are deceitful above all things and have taught us to mishear the promise. And so it is that Jesus arrives and we celebrate him with great fanfare, believing he has come to accomplish for us our dreams and our plans and our purposes, only to become disappointed, disillusioned, despondent, perhaps even angry. Because it starts to become clear that Jesus isn't interested in our plans and our purposes. He seems to be about something else. Something else entirely. This is true not only of the crowds that welcomed him, but his disciples. We know that he was, in the end, lost and abandoned by every last one of them. We celebrate his arrival one day and we seek to dismiss him and deny him and have him crucified the next day because he's not doing what we expected him to do. What we believe he promised to do. Brothers and sisters, we need by faith and the powerful working of the Spirit to revisit the promise. To rehear it. Because Jesus' arrival on that day was not to secure the people's dreams, as noble as they may or may not have been. His arrival was to accomplish what was promised. That the triune God himself would create a great name, ex nihilo, out of nothing, as it were. Build for himself a great nation, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Out of a people who weren't a people. Out of a people who had no name. 
and confer upon this people that at one time never existed on the face of the earth. Confer upon them his promise. Because the promise was to make for them a great name. To establish for them a great nation. To build for them a great kingdom. And then to give it to them. You see, our problem is we think that God's promise is about making us great. About making our name great. And the way we've come to that conclusion is we have accepted the lies of our culture as they've been mediated to us through the media and through Disney. If you can dream it, you can do it. After all, you can do all things. But that's not what he's about. It's about making his name great. It's about making him famous. It's about making his kingdom, building his kingdom upon the earth, even as it is in heaven. It's about making his legacy last for all eternity. And granting to us all the privileges that are involved in that great name. And that great kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we don't want our kingdom to come. We want his kingdom to come. We don't want our will to be done. We need his will to be done. That is worth celebrating. And until we celebrate that, we have cause to weep with Jesus. Once we understand and have heard it, it changes everything. If Jesus is arriving in our circumstances to effect his will, how does that change the way we understand our circumstances? If Jesus is arriving in your staff meeting to effect his will, how does that change how you understand your staff meeting? If Jesus is arriving in this particular group of relationships, perhaps with your roommates or whatever it is, if he's arriving in those places to affect his will, how does that change? Because if we understand Jesus' arrival to mean making our name great and making our plan successful, then when this person, that person, or another circumstance gets in the way, then we believe that we have discovered the limits of Jesus' power. And we become disappointed. But if Jesus, by his power, has thrust us into that circumstance, into that relationship to effect his will, to make his kingdom come and his will be done in this world as it is in heaven, well, that changes that. So how have you been hearing and understanding the promises? Whose arrival in your life and in your circumstances are you celebrating when we think of Jesus walking, coming into Jerusalem? Are you celebrating the man who comes to effect his will or the man who comes to secure for you your will? Because how you answer that question will change everything. So, Father, we pray.
that you would grant us eyes to see Jesus for the king that he is and not the king that we want him to be. We pray that you would give us ears to hear the promise that you made to be the promise that you made and not the promise we want you to have made. And so by the powerful working of your spirit, we pray that you would change us, turn us about so that we may behold your glory in our every circumstance, in our every conversation, and marvel at the great and wonderful things that you do as you move us from one place to the next, to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus. Amen.